So risk number one, look under every rock to figure out where the risks are on any deal. Because a lot of folks can come back and give you chapter and verse on the return, you know, the ROI, oh, the ROI is this and the ROI is that. But if you can't give it to me risk adjusted, right? So what's the risk involved with it? Then it doesn't mean anything to me. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Henry Doss is a serial entrepreneur, business and financial coach, screenwriter, avid traveler, golfer, and tennis player. He also actively trades the financial markets and manages a few select people's, think family, money. He resides for the time being in New Jersey, has been married for almost 30 years to the same woman, and has three mostly adult boys. Henry and I uh, know each other from Entrepreneurs Organization for a number of years. Henry, it's great to have you on the Deal Quest podcast. Great to be here, Corey. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So listen, before we get into all your experience around the things that you do and the businesses you've been in and the coaching that you do and you know the deals that you've done, I want to take you back. So when you were growing up as a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because I find that most people, uh, it's not what they're doing now, but you tell me whether that was true for you or not. That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. Well, you know what I wanted to be? I wanted to be a lawyer. Wow. That's okay. Exactly what I wanted to be when I was that age. And then I got older and I actually met some lawyers and I said, no, nah, I don't want to be that. <laughs> <laughs> he says to the lawyer, host of the podcast. Sorry for all you attorneys and lawyers. Please, I come in peace. Okay. Funny, I remember, this is really weird, but you brought it up. In the eighth grade, Mr. Dean's class, he was the teacher. And uh, he went around and asked everybody what their favorite TV show was. So... Eighth grade for me is 1973. So people are talking about Lost in Space and Gilligan's Island and blah, 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 blah. I mentioned the show called Petrocelli. Everybody looked at me like, uh -huh. what? And it was a show with Barry Newman and he lived in like a trailer in Arizona and he was sort of a country lawyer. And that was my favorite TV show. Uh, like, it. wow, lawyers are pretty cool. They get to live <laughs> in like a little camper van and... Anyway, I, I didn't know why that popped into my head, but you asked, you got it. Well, I love, I, frankly, that's why I, I like asking that question because it's one that often people haven't been asked. And, I, and you know, so you get some cool answers, like, like the one you yeah. just get. People are going to be Googling that show. Petrocelli, really? I actually that's not a real, that show, that's not a real show. I actually remember that show, believe it or not. Do you remember it? Good. I do. Right. That means we're, we're both old, older than we're, we want to admit. We're both of a certain age, um, <laughs> yes, exactly. as they say. So uh, one more uh, question, thinking back, what was your first deal of any type, whether that was with, when you were a kid, older, whatever, what's the first thing that comes to your mind and, uh, that you describe as a deal? 
Wow. Okay. So this is a real, this is another one, another trip down memory lane. So when I was uh, maybe about 10 years old, I wanted a new bicycle. So this is, I guess, the late, I was born in 59. So we're talking 69, 70. Yeah. And Schwinn made this bike that was called the Lemon Peeler. Again, okay. another thing you can go on eBay and you can Google that. And they had orange crate, lemon peeler, apple crate. It was the coolest thing. It had a little front wheel and a drum brake and it was five speeds, banana seat. But my parents, no way. I think it cost like $100, which it might as well have cost a billion dollars. <laughs> right. So when I was about 15, they, they had a local paper called the Suburban News where they had the one ads, buy and sell. And there was an ad for someone selling a lemon peeler and they wanted, I don't know what they wanted, 60, 60 bucks or whatever. And I had money from cutting lawns. I didn't have a driver's license yet. So they lived about a mile from my house. I walked to their house and I knocked on the door to answer the ads for this. And I had money in my pocket and I paid 50 bucks for the lemon peeler. And it was <laughs> gorgeous. And I rode it home. <laughs> And, he, and it's not the appropriate bike for a then 15-year-old, right? It's a kid's bike. Yeah. But it was the coolest thing ever. And so I rode it around very proudly for about three weeks. And then I put an ad in the very same newspaper, and I sold it for 80 bucks. Oh, I love it. So I killed so many birds with that stone because I got to say I owned the lemon peeler, and I rode it around very proudly, and I shined it up. And then I sold it and I made a, after cost of goods, I think it, the ad was like all at two bucks. So I think I made about 28 bucks on the deal. Nice return it. on investment. I love it. An early buy, use and flip. Uh, I'm telling you, you know how much one of those would cost now? They're at 3,500 bucks for one in really good shape on eBay. Wow. Find them. Yeah, they're, they're collectible. So one of these days I'll buy one. I, I need it like I need the hole in my head, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when I'm 80 years old, you'll see funny. cruising around <laughs> on a lemon peeler. Well, it's interesting. I, I wasn't going to go here right now, but I will because a buy, you know, hold for a little while and flip approach is, is also a real estate investing strategy. And I know you've done some real estate investing. I don't know if it's that type, but uh, why don't we talk about why don't we <laughs> segue to real estate I investing. will take another trip down memory lane, a bit more recent. So... I lived in, uh, when you and I knew each other back in the EO days, I guess you lived in the city. I lived in, in the city. When we say city, we're talking New York City as if it's the only city on the planet. Right, right, right. I lived in the Greenwich Village and I lived in the city for many, many years. My wife is from Queens. Her family lived in the West Village. We moved to Westchester. We moved to a little town called Scarsdale, which is north of New York City. Uh, you know, white collar suburb. Yep. And we bought a fixer-upper special. This is 2003, 2004. And I interviewed like 17 contractors and finally hired a guy. This is a big project. This ended up being a three-quarter of a million dollar renovation project on top of a seven-figure house. And I met the guy and he became, I wrote about him in my book. I changed his name to Bob. So Bob is not his real name, but for reasons that will become obvious when I finish the story. And Bob and I became friends and we were happy to be friends, him and his girlfriend who became his wife and they became some of our first friends. And then we started doing real estate deals together. He was looking for investors. So I knew lots of people with the deep pockets. So we raised the equity. We bought the first deal we did. We bought a $1.2 million house and knocked it down and built a $3 million house in its place. And it worked out great. We did some other deals together. 
And then as the Great Recession started to approach and things started to get really dicey in the housing market, this is a terrible story, but this is the punchline, he committed suicide. Oh, no. Wow. And we had a project going and it was multiple millions of dollars because each project we did, we, you know, we ramped it up. And then we found out all this dirty laundry. In fact, I went on a podcast and for the entire half hour, I just sort of told this story in gory detail. And we were shocked and blind. I mean, he jumped off a bridge. That's like, wow. So that spiraled into all sorts of lawsuits and other investors sued me because I was the only principal left with a pulse. Right. The bank sued me. Then now all of a sudden it's 2008 and uh, Lehman collapsed and Bear Stearns collapsed. To make an incredibly long story short, my lawyer calls me one day and he says, I need you to sit down for reasons that in my 36 years of experience, I have no idea. We won. <laughs> we won our case. And they gave you a, a get out of jail free card. Wow. Yeah, they foreclosed on the property. But the judge said, you cannot go after any principles of this deal. The only one left was me. So yeah, I don't know what it is. All that good, clean living or whatever. uh, That didn't make up for three years of sleepless nights. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. So by that time, it was, yeah, it was tough. Yeah. So although we won't go into the details of the story, just uh, why don't you hit us with some of the lessons that you you learned about whether it's business partnerships or real estate investing or dealing with, you know. Uh, Is this like a five hour show? (laughs) (laughs) Highlights, highlights. (laughs) Highlights, yeah. Oh, lowlights. Lowlights. All right. Number one. I deluded myself into thinking, and this is really the number one, and this is the number one thing that I talk about when it comes to money or entrepreneurship or anything, yeah. is risk. I thought I had covered my you-know-what in terms of risk. I hadn't at all. I didn't put proper fiscal controls in. I let, I let him control the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never asked to audit those or do anything. I'll tell you a funny thing. We were raising a few million bucks and we're at the bank at the closing and the woman sticks the forms, you know, the, you know, those legal size forms, the uniform lending, whatever thing, all that stuff that you have to fill out when you apply for a mortgage. Yep. Yep. Well, we never, we, we didn't do any of that. She handed it to me at the closing. I'm mm. like, what is this? She goes, well, we just need it for our records. I'm like, I don't have any of this information. She said, don't worry about it. Just like sign it here, sign it here, blah, blah, blah. It'll, it'll all be good. That should have been, I immediately should have gotten up and ran from the hills because that shows you how risk blind the banks were at the time. Yeah. This is now, that was probably in 2005 or 2006. And it only got worse from there. So risk number one, look under every rock to figure out where the risks are on any deal. Because a lot of folks can come back and, tell, and give you chapter and verse on the return. You know, the ROI, oh, the ROI is this and the ROI is that. But if you can't give it to me risk adjusted, right? So what's the risk involved with it? Uh, then it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. That's the number one. And there's probably a whole bunch of others. Always have a really good seasoned attorney <laughs> at your beck and call who knows this stuff. And understand that there are rules. The courts are very strict and very stringent about the timeliness of your reply. Apparently what happened what, that we found out after the fact is uh, the judge just simply didn't like that the bank was so lackadaisical about how they were treating this, mm. right? 
and he read them. In fact, what he did was he, a month after he gave me this get out of jail free card, he rescinded his order. So my attorney got a call from the attorney for the bank and said, what did you do? And our lawyer said, what do you mean? What did we do? He said, they pulled the, um, you know, the right to foreclose. It's like, we didn't do anything, dude. We're done. Right. Yeah. And he held them out for a whole year. In the meantime, the market collapsed even further. So they ended right. up selling the property on the bank steps and they, they basically bought it back from themselves. Wow. And I was happy to wash my hands of it at that point. Um, wow. Wow. It was a lot of sleepless nights. A lot of my wife wagging her finger at me saying, I told you not to do this. It's like, I don't remember that you told me not to do this. <laughs> but if that's what you said, like I said, we married for 30 years to the same woman. So <laughs> that, I guess one of the reasons is I said, okay, you're right. Lesson learned. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. It's interesting. I, I just finished uh, reading or listening uh, uh, audiobook uh, of The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer, who also, also wrote The Untethered Soul. And, and uh, I didn't know his story, but I won't get into the whole thing, but I definitely recommend the book and The Surrender Experiment. But he built a, you know, a multi-hundred million dollar business and got accused by an employee who was embezzling to try to save himself by claiming that all the executives were involved in kickback schemes and stuff like that. Right. And went an eight-year ordeal and then was let out of the case by the DA. And this was a DOJ thing. This was a criminal thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, was let out of the case. So it was a fascinating story as well, you know, in that regard. All right. So before we talk about some of your other deals, just give us, let's, let's talk about what you're doing now and what kind you know, clients you're serving and who's your market and what do you do for them? Okay. So my primary avocation is entrepreneurial coach. I call myself a coach approach strategic advisor. So what does that mean? Basically, I have 30 years of entrepreneurial experience. So about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, I decided to become a coach. I uh, signed up for courses with a coach training place called Coachville, you know, really good reputation. And I spent about a year learning the best practices of coaching. So if I'm going to do this for real, you know, I want training. So I went through and I did all that. A little bit of a deer in the headlights with some of the stuff that they were doing. But after I finished, I realized that, you know, this is great, but this is leaving a lot of my entrepreneurial experience on the table here because there are rules to become an accredited, a PCC or an ACC. I never did any of those practicums because I can't live by those rules. There's just too much experience here that doesn't really fit in with the coach-like setting. So I created my own sort of brand, Coach Approach Strategic Advisor, CASA. So half a coach and half a strategic advisor, because sometimes I just have the answer and I'm not going to put uh, the entrepreneur through silly, torturous games if I have the answer for them. I mean, I just have to be blunt with that because you could spend hours and hours and sessions and sessions getting them to come to the realization. Now, that doesn't mean I tell them what to do, right? That I don't do right? I'm not in the business of saying, you need to do this. But, you know, we'll, we'll chop up all the various alternatives. But ultimately, it's their company. So that's the main thing that I do. And then I wrote a book called FQ Financial Intelligence. And I created a 20-week course to teach people about money 
this is not just for entrepreneurs, this is really for anybody. Sort of everything, uh, my tagline is something like, everything you need to know from your first savings bond to your last will and testament. Talk about how to build your balance sheet, income statement, psychology of money, how to build a lifelong financial plan, how to invest in markets like we're talking about now, how to plan for retirement, how to plan to pay for kids' college, you know, you name it. I covered it. Love it. Um, and give the name of the book again, Henry. It's called FQ, which is sort of like IQ is intelligence and EQ is emotional intelligence. So FQ is financial intelligence. And right. that's it. FQ, financial intelligence. Love it. Yeah. So yeah, folks, I'm sure look on Amazon and all the beautiful- You can look on Amazon, but just go, if you just go to my website, you can, there's a link in there somewhere where you can just download it for free. Oh, there you go. Off a book, baby. The only person who makes money off of books is Jeff Bezos. And I read today he's worth $171 billion. So he doesn't need book sales, huh? He doesn't need book sales. I love it. So talk to me a little bit. You know, one of the fundamental premises of this podcast is, uh, you know, being EO friends uh, come up in this entrepreneurial world. It's the world I travel and it's the world you travel in in many ways. You know, I, I always say that the, obviously, in order to have a successful company, you need to have a product, a service that, you know, is needed, wanted, quality, you can sell it, all that kind of stuff. You know, what basically, you know, organic sales, organic growth. But in addition to that, there are so many opportunities for deal-driven growth that companies have, you know, whether they're small startup, huge, have capital, don't have capital, different size deals, types deals, not only big M&A, but licensing, joint venture, strategic alliances. How do you find that that coming in? Because I find there are so many companies who are banging their heads against the wall, trying to get more sales and more clients organically. And again, they should figure that piece out, but they're not looking at any kind of strategic alliances or deal-driven growth. What are you seeing? Yeah, I see. Well, I see a bunch of things here. I work with a lot of um, location independent businesses, sometimes referred to as digital nomads. But if you've got a company, you've got staff in... Eastern Europe, you've got staff in the Philippines, and you know SaaS products and all sorts of different stuff. And you're right, people will spend inordinate amounts of money trying to build an organic sales channel, and they're not particularly good at it. Yeah. Now, one thing they'll do is they'll say, oh, well, that's okay. I'm going to start an FBA, right? FBA is fulfilled by Amazon, mm-hmm. right? or an affiliate business where someone else is going to do all the selling part of it. And that's great, but then you're playing in somebody else's sandbox and they make the rules. For instance, I think it was April 21st that Amazon changed the affiliate payment structure and it's now half of what it was before that. So those kind of deals don't always, they look good on the surface, but then when you start peeling through the, the layers of it, you realize ah, maybe it's not such a good deal. The other side is to do the, the one plus one equals three. All right, I got a company, we're really good at this. I know a guy who has a company that's really good at that and there's some certain synergies there. If we bring them together and join forces, we may be able to get some kind of a multiple on this by leveling up. That's a classic deal and that doesn't have to be a an M&A, a strict, you know, bankers and lawyers and all these suit and tie types coming in. These can be done on a small level. Yep. Yeah, they could be contractual. It could be joint venture. It could be strategic alliance. Just be yep. a distribution be deal, any, marketing any, deal. There's a million ways to sort of yeah. skin the cat. The main thing, though, is that there has to be, there's got to be some multiplier effect from it. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Do you have an example uh, or so, you know, of, of a situation where you've... Uh, 
coached or, or a personal situation where you've had that multiplier effect through a deal or you've helped a client? I, with? I have clients who um, accumulate websites, right? Yeah. So it's so it's sort of a mini mini deal. Yep. But what they have is they have a, a you know a, a skill set. They may be expert at SEO and, and other parts of it. So they're looking for synergistic products that they can buy. Now these things are are just you know bought and sold every day. Yep. Right. You can go to um, Empire Flippers or Flippa or FE. There's a bunch of companies that do this. And you can put together little sort of mini portfolios. Yeah. I worked a few years ago with a guy who was putting together a portfolio, but he was doing it. He had, he owned like 30 websites, but each one had an individual investor who invested in that individual website. Very interesting. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. And I said, well, have you ever thought about like syndicating this? I mean, Maybe you could de-risk a little bit if you made it just a pool of 30 websites because some are going to do well and some are going to do poorly. Some investors are going to be really happy and some are going to be not so happy. But maybe if you give them all a structured return, you can just bundle those all together into a singular unit and just sell off fractional shares. Obviously, it brings up all sorts of regulatory issues and all that kind of stuff, but that's what you hire the lawyers for, the one that that I didn't become. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, that it's uh, I love it applied in that venue because you know that kind of conversation comes up with you know companies. Hey, are we going to invest one off in companies, uh, or are we going to create a fund that's going to invest in you know in companies? It, it certainly happens in real estate, mm-hmm. right? Am I sure. raising money for a single project, or am I putting together you know a fund that will do multiple projects to have capital available and also to yeah leverage you know or, or distribute risk so it's interesting applying it in a website acquisition you know portfolio strategy is i haven't really thought about that one before but it's totally applicable there's a few folks that are doing it but not nearly as much as i would think there would be now there maybe there's some hidden regulatory bit in there that i don't know about but a lot of folks are that i deal with are domiciled overseas i mean i've had clients on every continent except antarctica I guess, I don't know. I guess I just can't reach down to, to the land of penguins. Huge reputation has not quite gotten. It, it has not. My global reputation has not made it down yeah. to where all the ice is melting. Someday <laughs> it will. I'm looking, yeah. you know, that'll be like one of those big hairy, you know, the Jim Collins BHAG, the big hairy yeah. audacious goal is to book a client Antarctica. So I imagine that there are domiciles around the globe, which would be quite friendly to this idea. Sure. Couldn't say what they would be off the top of my head. Andorra, Malta, Panama. I mean, all the usual suspects. Yep. Uh, and now I'm not talking about anything that's fraudulent, mind you. Of course. I'm talking legit. Of the course. purpose isn't to go there so you can perpetrate a fraud. The reason to go there is so that they don't have the impediments to putting the syndicate together. Right, right, right. Because right. because all all of all of these folks uh uh, are uh, if they're U.S. citizens, they're uh, obligated to pay tax on their worldwide income. Absolutely, the ones who are doing doing it legit are not doing it as a tax uh, haven. No, it's uh, not a tax dodge. But but no. yes, but there's other uh, reasons to do it. Totally okay. And I know that you've been in some business partnerships over the years. Uh, talk about um, you know, I mean, any stories that you're willing to share, and certainly lessons that have come out about. Because, you know, I've had my uh, couple of business partnerships over the years and I've certainly learned a lot uh, from them. So uh, what, yeah. what have you learned uh, in that kind of deal? Being I've, with I've, partners? Well, I've had two partners. One is still alive. He predated it. It's really my first partner. So when I started my 
first business in 1991. It's basically, it's almost 30 years ago. We were college friends and we became partners in a computer company. I was sort of the Mr. Inside. He was the Mr. Outside. That was around the time that, well, actually the, that business ran great for almost maybe 10 years until it kind of didn't and the crack started to come through. It was my impetus for joining EO was to try to find a way to get out of this partnership. And the reason I hired my very first business coach was to help me navigate getting out of this partnership because I made a rookie mistake. So as long as we're talking about deals, here's something for people to think about. We had a philosophy that we agree to agree or we agree to disagree when it came to any sort of major decision for the business. So if we didn't have unanimity between the two of us, it didn't happen. We did not have a buy-sell agreement. Okay. When we started, nah, we're not going to worry about that. We haven't even done any business yet. We don't need a buy-sell agreement. Well, by the time the business was successful and by the later 90s, we were up to, you know, $4 million business. So that's probably an eight to $10 million business if you consider inflation at this time. And I'm like, uh, I don't want to be in this partnership anymore. And now I'm sort of stuck. Yeah. Uh, right. Cause we agree to agree or agree to disagree. And that led to a lot of difficulty after sort of after the whole dot bomb thing came through that had a real impact on our business. I was left with nothing. It would have been wonderful if when we had zero dollars, we just memorialized a deal that we could have lived with to exit. But yeah. we didn't. So it ended up being the War of the Roses for, again, another, another three years out of my life, trying to negotiate and figure out how to get out of this partnership and start something new. Got it. You said you had a second partner as well, right? Well, no, I had the first, I had the, the second partner was the, the one who, Bob, who jumped off the bridge. Oh, got it, got it. So yeah, yeah. it took me a couple of years to, yeah. to kick off the dust from this first partner uh, to have this second partner. No, I have, since then, um, I have been a solo act. Got it. What I basically tell, tell people is if a great partner came along and Vito Corleone uh, style said, we need to be partners, you know, partnership or your brains on the contract, mm-hmm. you know, put a gun to my head. And yeah. Until that day happens, though, I'm happy to be a solo act. It has its pluses and its minuses. Until somebody um, makes you an offer, you can't refuse. Huh? Yeah, the offer, the proverbial, sorry, I, I butchered that. Yes, the proverbial offer, I can't refuse. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Before we um, do the last two quick things on the podcast here, any other last thoughts, tips, uh, deals, uh, major learnings on your entrepreneurial journey? Because it sounds like uh, every entrepreneur, and by the way, if anybody thinks this is different for anyone, you've had a few ups and downs like we all have. Um, so what, uh, any key lessons along the way, general entrepreneurial or deal-wise? Well, that's funny. You know, it, it, I, I do these, I've done a lot of podcasts since, uh, since the um, coronavirus hit. And I talk about a lot of negative stuff. You know, yeah. even in my book, I do. It's very funny how, I, and I even said it in my book, I said, I could make 20 grand on a trade, right? And it'll fade from view, but lose 500 bucks, you know, and it ends up as a chapter in my, in my book. <laughs> right, right. And, right? The, and, and there is psychological underpinnings to that. People have wrote, written on that, on how we, you know, uh, yeah, pleasure, and how we pain, pain, principle, and all that right. stuff. So, you know, what I've covered here, a couple of gloom and dooms, yet here I am 60 years old, you know, I have a good net worth and I have a great family and I sent my kids to college and they came out with no college debt and clearly I've done something right along the line. 
Right. For the entrepreneurs that are out there, whether you're running a $500,000 or a $5 million business or whatever, as entrepreneurs, we all think we have all the answers. We all think we're invincible. I have this image in my brain of the entrepreneur in front of the bankruptcy judge pleading with him to just give him one more chance. I know I can turn this ship around, mm -hmm. right? Because you have to be almost irrationally optimistic to be an entrepreneur. Because yes. when something like COVID comes along and I opened my practice up for three months, you know, it's, it's now July 2nd today, but for April, May, and June, I opened the doors up for anybody to come in free of charge. I spoke to over 50 different people. I had 87 conversations with people and people's businesses went from doing really, really well. Some people went from really well to zero overnight. Folks who were in the hospitality and travel business and all that stuff. That doesn't happen. I mean, that's just talk about a black swan event. I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. We can't prepare for the nuclear bomb, right? It's impossible. But it does show us, you know, our, our, our resiliency now that the shock is over, people, they recover, yeah. right? We talked about lessons learned. What are the lessons learned? Well, the important thing is just learn them once. <laughs> Don't learn them Absolutely. the same lesson over and over again. And last little point, and it's a more of a mini uh, kind of a, um, not meant to be a mini advertisement for me as a coach, but get help. I, yeah. I don't think I ever would have solved that business situation, in the t even with the time that it took with my business partner, if I hadn't hired a coach and gotten into a group like EO. Yeah. No question. I could not do it alone. I could by brute force, but why? Why but would you do that to yourself? Exactly. You know, it's funny because I've sort of had that. I, th I think it's also uh, some wisdom with age and, and I think, uh, like, I don't want to say, so, I mean, there, I, there are some young folks I know who get stuff way before I ever did and I'm amazed at their wisdom. But in general, like, I was much more headstrong when I was in my 20s or whatever, you know, the, the early 30s, where, like, I had something to prove and I had to do it. And, you know, mm -hmm. and I got to the point where yeah. I finally said, yeah, you know what? I, maybe I, because I was already proved to myself I could do it if I needed to. But, but then it was like, why? Why do it the hard way? Why not rely upon people who have experience, who've been through, who can support you, give you good suggestions, you know, pat you on the back, all that stuff. It's just stupid. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, I trade the stock markets I have for like 40 years. I did my first trade when I was in high school. And I've hired, uh, you know, trading coaches and I have, um, you know, some mentors. That's an area where you really need to get other people's wisdom. So a bunch of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who's one of, one of my mentors. And I said, hey, I'm thinking of doing a trade on this stock. It was a, it was a big pharma stock. It was 400 bucks a share. Well, you know, Amazon's close to three grand a share today and Tesla is up to like 1200, whatever. Yeah. But 400 bucks is a lot of money for a stock. Yes. And he said to me, very matter of factly, what are you trying to prove, Henry? <laughs> You know, there are thousands of stocks out there. You have some sort of personal goal that some mountaintop that you can trade this really unwieldy stock. Why would you do that? We're looking for easy money. I never forgot that. So I tell that to people all the time. I tell them, I said, if you're, if you're, um, if you're trading the markets and it's hard and it's crazy, you're doing something wrong, right? You want to find easy money. People say, oh, there's no easy money. There's easy stuff to trade. I'm not saying it's guaranteed to make you money, but why don't you trade the 10 or $20 stocks instead of the $400 stocks? So that was a lesson I learned. I guess the same rules apply in deals, right? When we were in the leasing business, I used to tell my partner, look, 
It takes the same amount of time to do a $10,000 lease as it is to do a $10 million lease. Yes. Let's spend, I know the sales cycle is longer on the 10 million, but the rewards are so much greater. Why don't we just spend our time going after those deals? But you still got to do a bunch of $10,000 deals to learn your craft. Absolutely. Right? You've got to learn the craft and you want to learn that with as little money in play as possible. Yeah, exactly. So another, another bit of deal-making advice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No question about it. So Henry, before I ask you my last question, uh, what's the best place for people to find out more about you? My personal website is just www.henrydas, D-A-A-S, or um, I also have D-A-S-S because people misspell my name all the time. <laughs> so I'm belts and braces on that. My main business site, that's my personal site but it links back to my business site. So you can see all my businesses and my baseball card collection and my golf trips and, you know, settlers of my settlers of Catan board, all the crazy stuff that I do. My screenplays. My main business site is daasknowledge.com. Love it. Um, yeah, that's it. And those will be in the show notes, folks, if you're driving or can't take it down right now. Final question on the podcast, Henry, is always about my highest ideal in life, my highest value in life, which is freedom. And that relates to, everything from freedom for all peoples, from oppression, from everything, to the reason why I'm an entrepreneur, right? I'm unemployable. What does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your business and life? Well, uh, without sounding like a, a bad bumper sticker, freedom ain't free, right? You're seeing it now with, with the Black Lives Matter, with folks out in the street protesting in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, yep. putting my screenwriter brain on and, and, and suspending disbelief, it's like, I'm not even going to believe the story where people went out in the middle of a generational public health crisis and fought for freedom and liberty. I tip my hat. I would be one of them. But as a 60, almost 61-year-old type 2 diabetic, probably not in my best interest to go out there because I don't want to get COVID. Uh, yeah. But I'm with them in spirit, right? You're going to have to fight tooth and nail to maintain the Bill of Rights. You just are, because there are always gonna be folks out there who are trying to feather their own nest and your freedom is inconvenient to them and they'll try to take it away, right? I'm not talking right-wing live free or die stuff. You know, I don't wanna get crazy there. That's not where I, I fit on the spectrum. But I tell people, you exercise your civil rights or they atrophy and blow away. Don't let that happen. Love it. Great way to end. Uh, Henry Doss, thank you for being on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.